I remember when I got my first cell phone. I was 16 years old. Nothing fancy, just a flip phone. I don't even think I had texting on it. Um, but you know what else I remember? I remember when my little sister got her first cell phone at age 14. <laughs> not fair, not fair. Now I'm sure I have the sympathy of all the firstborns in the room who remember the babies of the family getting privileges we had to wait for. We remember the devious smirks of our siblings as they bore witness to our outrage. We don't forget such injustices, do we? We do more easily forget the undeserved generosity. I didn't buy my phone, nor did I pay its bill. My parents took care of all of that. Now, I should have just been grateful and warmly welcomed my sis to the cell phone club, but perhaps that was expecting too much of my teenage self. It was the way I should have responded anyways. Jesus is keenly aware of how bitter and resentful we can be. He knows that we tend to have high opinions of ourselves, and what we think we deserve. It's with reason that again and again he talks about God's kingdom belonging to little children and that the last will be first. He's trying to drill it through our thick skulls that we need to check our attitudes big time. He's trying to remind us that we all eat from his hands and that those who think that they're number one, will find themselves last in the kingdom. So in these first verses that we look at here in verses 1 through 7, we find Jesus offering a parable. This is the par parable of the vineyard workers, or as has been alternatively titled, the parable of the eccentric landowner. And the reason why we'll Consider the possibility that the landowners a little bit eccentric will be revealed as we go through this parable. Now, this parable follows on the heels of something that Peter has just said at the end of Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verses 27 through 30, um, Peter, and on observing how difficult it is for uh, rich, those who are rich again to the kingdom of God because they have to leave a whole lot behind to follow Jesus. He says, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you at the renewal of all things when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. So Jesus introduces this parable to continue fleshing out exactly what he's talking about when he says that those who are last will be first and those who are first will be last. So in this parable, 
he says that the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who hires workers for his vineyard. Now, the place that, the, that this landowner goes to hire these workers is to the marketplace. And you can imagine ancient marketplaces kind of being like a temp agency for laborers who, laborers who weren't regularly employed. If you needed a job, you went to the marketplace and basically offered your services for hire. And the landowner goes to the marketplace very early. He goes there at 6 a.m. Um, because that's when the working day starts. The whole Jewish working day basically went from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Basically the break of dawn until you're starting to lose some light. Now what's interesting about this landowner is he doesn't just go to the marketplace once to hire the workers for the day, but he keeps going again and again. And there's a couple of possibilities for considering why it is that he goes again and again. If we're thinking in the context of the kingdom of, of God and what Jesus said about the harvest of the kingdom of God, we'll recall that in Matthew 9, verses 37 through 38, he told his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask, of the, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So if we think about this parable as the landowner is supposed to be depicting God, um, you can imagine that if the harvest needs to be taken in, then kind of aligning with what Jesus has already said, he's going to need a lot of workers because he has a plentiful harvest to take in. But the other thing that we could take away as an observation from his repeated visits to the marketplace is that this guy is a charitable man because he's going again and again to the marketplace and he's providing jobs for people. People who, if they were not able to find work, wouldn't have been able to put food on their tables. So he goes out at 6 a.m., he goes out at 9 a.m., he goes out at noontime, at 3 in the afternoon, and then it says that he goes out at 5 p.m., and again, I've said that the working day ends at 6 p.m. So one hour before closing, this guy is still going to the marketplace to hire people. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was a boss, I would be like, what's the point? Like, just wait till the next day and I'll get some more workers. But you're getting the sense that this guy wants to do more than just take in at his harvest. He wants to help people. Because he knows that these people can't wait for the work tomorrow. They need a job today. So, in terms of his financial arrangements with these workers, we see that those that he hired first, he agreed to pay a denarius for the day, and that all those that followed, whatever is right. Presumably, what we imagine would be a, a fraction of a denarius. Now, it's not really all that helpful to try to do an exact conversion between denarius and our money today, but we can just imagine how much someone might make today. Um, let's say they made like 25 bucks an hour, 25 bucks an hour. So let's say a day's wage is like $300. So you, when you divide that down by 12 hours, you know you're, you're looking at 12, 25 bucks for an hour. So you would expect that those who only worked an hour would get 25 bucks. Now this is where we come to our surprise in verses. 8 through 16. Evening time comes, 
and it's time to pay up. And this employer is a good employer. Some employers might try to withhold pay and say, oh, you know, just come back again tomorrow and then I'll pay you. But he's, he's good. He pays his worker at the end of the day. And that lines up exactly with what God expects in Deuteronomy 24:15. He says, pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. So this, this boss knows that his workers are counting on getting this money, and he pays them. And, and this is just kind of like a little side anecdote here. We see throughout the Old Testament and continuing on into um, the New Testament how God is a defender of the poor. He's, he's, he's concerned about those who are, who are kind of downtrodden. Ancient Israel was supposed to have this practice of canceling debts every year across the nation. And uh, God anticipates that some people might be unwilling to offer out loans when you're getting close to that seventh year because it, was, it wasn't seven years from when you got the loan. It was a regular seven years for the whole nation. And so anticipating that some of the rich might withhold helping out their neighbors, God tells them in Deuteronomy 15.9, Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near so that you do not show ill will toward the, neighbor, toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. So, kind of bringing this anecdote about observing God's heart for the poor, basically what we're seeing here in this image of this vineyard owner is someone who has God's heart, which is fitting, again, because the vineyard owner is representative of God. He's, he's very generous. So much so that it's actually a little bit shocking and what some would call a bit eccentric. Um, he tells his foreman to gather the workers together and that he's going to pay those who were hired last first, which even that alone might seem a little bit weird. You think those that had been working there all day, you know, they just want to get home, give them their pay. They worked hard. Um, but instead he starts with those who were last. Now, these, have, these, these guys have literally only worked an hour in the day. They should only expect like 25 bucks coming back to them. Um, and yet, we also know that they had waited in the marketplace to get a job and that they needed a day's wage. Nine hours wage, they needed a day's wage um, to support their family. And so, to their great surprise, when the foreman comes and gathers them and they receive their pay, they're paid a full day's wage, a full denarius. Now, as the rest of the workers are watching this, they're probably a little bit puzzled, but then they probably get a little bit excited because they're thinking to themselves, well, if they got paid the denarius, then we're going to get paid more, certainly, since we were working here all day. But then, when their turn in line comes, they're paid exactly the same as those who had only worked an hour. They start grumbling. They start getting a little bit upset. Now, again, we've noticed how generous and charitable this, this landowner is, and it's fair to assume that he had paid them kind of the standard fare. They wouldn't have gotten paid 
anymore anywhere else for their work. But despite that fact, despite the fact that they had gotten paid a fair wage, they were jealous because these others had received so much, even though they hadn't worked through the heat of the day. Imagine working through <laughs> the heat of the day with the kind of days that we've had versus just getting to wait till it's 5 p.m. when it's a lot cooler. Um, they're peeved. You're irritated. Now, again, this is not a real story. This is a parable. And it's a parable that's supposed to be applied to the community of the disciples, to the life of the church. So we go back to Matthew 19 and we recall Peter's comment, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Basically what Peter could have just been saying is, we've been through the heat of the day. We've been working all day. What's going to be waiting for us? And Peter's inquiry seems somewhat justified, especially when you consider the rest of his life. This is a guy that faced much persecution, and tradition says he ended up being crucified upside down on a cross. And that was the fate of many of the apostles and many of the early Christians. If you can go to the next slide, Tim. Um, the early church literally was faced with the Colosseum for their faith. Brought into the Colosseum, crucified, fed to lions. Um, the Emperor Nero even used them for torches in his garden. Really terrible, grotesque things. And the thing is, though, that didn't stay that way. Things changed. About 300, 400 years later, the empire turned Christian under the Emperor Constantine. You can go to the next slide, Tim. That's old Emperor Constantine there. And he embraced Christianity and suddenly it became a lot less costly to be a Christian. In fact, it became more costly to be a non-Christian because you wouldn't have as good business relations and clout in the society. And some of the Christians began to notice this, especially those that were very kind of devout to the faith, and they wanted to be just like their heroes who had come before them. And so you notice over the course of church history the imposition of these kind of artificial forms of burden to try to go back to that original time period of costliness with forms of self-imposed poverty, um, fasting, not just for a limited period, but across your whole life of not eating fine foods and all these kinds of things, abstaining, abstaining from marriage for life, making that a rule, basically doing anything to make life difficult in order to kind of be like those early martyrs. And from this, you end up getting this differentiation and rank among the members of the body of Christ, where before, everyone who's a Christian was counted as one of the saints. You begin to have some elevated to a, to a status of saint and, and others just remaining at a lowly level of, of a mere 
Christian. Now, you can go to the next slide, Tim. What this, I think, ultimately led to, though it's not the sole cause of, was the doctrine of purgatory, which is held by the Roman Catholic Church. In order to kind of match with this formation of this kind of differentiation between the status of people based on what they've been doing in their life, what they had suffered, and they introduced this doctrine of purgatory, which is basically this idea is that there's a waiting room before you get to heaven, where you need to get straightened out, because what if you, you know, lived wickedly your whole life and you came to Christ and then died? Certainly you couldn't go into heaven at the same time as someone who had been one of these monks doing all these things across their whole entire lifetime. And so, purgatory was introduced as this place in which you had to wait, sometimes in the order of millions of years, before you would be able to get into heaven. Now, aside from the fact that purgatory has no biblical merit, you would think something as significant as that would be explicitly described in scriptures. It's not. This whole notion flatly contradicts everything that Jesus is saying here in Matthew 20. You can go to the next slide, Tim. Because what Jesus is making clear here in this parable is that we shouldn't be focused on what we deserve. Because in the end, it's not really about us. All of us are the recipients of God's generosity. All grace and rewards are His to give to whoever He desires. And Paul reiterates this clearly in Titus and Ephesians. You can go to the next slide. Paul says, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. And in Ephesians, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So our salvation isn't based on our works. Our salvation is based on God's pure grace in saving us through Jesus. He's taken us from the marketplace when he could have left us out to dry. And yes, he has put us into his field to do the good work of the vineyard. And all of us will share in in the reward at the end of the day. But we're going to share in that reward whether we came early or whether we came late. You can go to the next slide. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 8 through 10, Paul, when responding to the Corinthians about some bragging and boasting and conflict among some of the Corinthian Christians about whether they had been baptized by Apollos or Paul and trying to, again, kind of vie for position and prominence. Paul says, the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers 
and God's service. You are God's field, God's building. We are co-workers in God's service. It's this idea that, yes, we're all going to share in this reward that the kingdom of God is bringing, but we've got to think of ourselves not in this individualistic, selfish kind of matter of what I'm going to get, but in what we are sharing together and being brought into God's work and redeeming this world. Now, the problem that the landowner identifies in this worker and, and his workers is that they're not able to, to take joy in the good of the late workers because they are envious. Which, if you go into the original Greek, it literally means your eye is full of evil. Now, if any of you have ever struggled with envy, I have struggled with envy, I feel like that really captures quite well what's going on when we're envious of others. We know that we should desire what's good for others, and yet we become jealous and wishing that they hadn't received such good in their lives. And Jesus talks about this kind of phenomenon of our eyes going back to uh, Matthew 6, verse 23. He says, But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? When we're envious of others, when we see those who have kind of come along lately in the faith, and we realize that their status before, the, before God is just the same as ours. Or when they begin to enjoy certain blessings even in this, own, in this present life that maybe we don't enjoy, our gratitude for what God has given us out of His generosity can become obscured by the evil that is filling our eyes. So the ultimate point that Jesus is trying to drive here at in this parable is, is that we need to check our prideful attitudes on both ends, whether it's in anticipating what's to come in the next age, and that's primarily what even Peter was looking forward to, is like, what are we going to get in the next age? And Jesus is like, cool it, buddy, <laughs> a little bit. Don't think so highly of yourself. But I... It also applies to, to today as well, because we know that there are certain blessings that we receive as we come to Christ today. We also know that following Jesus comes with some significant costs. And we need to be careful. We need to be watchful, watching ourselves and what happens to our eyes when we observe that We've suffered much in following Christ. We've suffered a lot in our life. And yet we feel like we're missing out on certain blessings when there's others around us, other Christian brothers and sisters who we see haven't suffered as much, haven't been as faithful as we are, at least in our estimation. And yet they receive all these blessings. It can make us very jealous. It's very easy for us to do that. And what Jesus is trying to tell us here is you need to check your attitude. Don't be ungrateful. See how generous God has been to you and be glad 
for your brothers and sisters. So to get us thinking straight, there are three things that I think you need to walk away with after reading uh, these verses. So the first thing. First, we should understand that this parable isn't about earning our salvation. The point of this parable is to demonstrate God's generosity and grace toward us by bringing us into his vineyard. Some of us have been here a while. Others not. But we are all the recipients of God's generosity. And this leads us to the second takeaway. That God's generosity should produce gratitude in us. Gratitude corrodes pride because when we are truly grateful, we will admit that we would be nothing apart from God's grace. We will admit that whatever good we've done or things we've suffered, we will not make ourselves even with the immeasurable mercy God has shown us in Jesus. When we stop being prideful, we will stop being envious. Our envy stems from thinking that we deserve more than what we have received. Thirdly and lastly, this parable should impress upon us just how good God is. And this should lead us to trust Him and celebrate. When the owner answers the grumbling worker, he doesn't spit at him. He calls him friend. God cares for you and me. He is generous to all of us. Our standard in, standing in God's kingdom is measured by Him, not the world. And so our concern shouldn't be with ranking ourselves, calling some saints and others merely Christians. He's told us not to worry about all that. He's told us to just trust in His goodness to all. We are freed to just joyfully participate in the work of the vineyard, whether it be early or late in the day. At day's end, He will show Himself faithful. He will not leave us without our reward. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank You for Your mercy towards us. For Your generosity towards us. And that while we were sinners, while we were standing empty-handed in the marketplace, You brought us into Your household so that we might have life. And You have given us this life in Jesus Christ, Father. And You have given us the additional blessing, Father, of joining in the work of our Savior, of bringing the good news to all people, to following after Him, to becoming like Him, not through our power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that You would humble us, 
that you would remind us of this mercy that we've received so that we would not be envious, so that we would not be jealous of those who come along later in life, who seem to be able to live wild and crazy and basically do whatever they want, but who you say will receive the same reward. Father, help us to just celebrate your goodness and your mercy. Help us to just be humbled knowing how much mercy you've had on us. And Father, as we go through this present day and we see how others have enjoyed blessings that maybe we're not presently enjoying, help us to trust in your goodness. To know that you're a good God who cares of the children. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.